right, Psalm 8, how majestic is your name? Go ahead and open your Bible up there. Last week, if you were with us, uh, we looked at how the coronation of an Israelite king is really a promise that is fulfilled in the coronation of Christ and how ultimately we have a savior who's going to rule with an iron scepter. He will deliver his people. He will destroy his enemies. Now, in the moments after preaching Psalm 2 to you last week um, about Judgment Day, the context in which I had spoken it, Mother's Day was not lost on me, and it became more apparent afterwards. And so I, I like the way uh, Wes uh, Nelson sub, summed up last uh, Sunday sermon. Uh, judgment Day, not even your mother can save you, okay? And so uh, I felt like after we had done that, like we're obligated next go around with Mother's Day. Like we have to do the Proverbs 31 virtuous woman. It's like an obligation at this point. And so we'll just have to next year. Um, but we've looked at a wisdom psalm in Psalm 1. We've looked at a royal psalm in Psalm 2. Today we look at a praise psalm in Psalm 8. It's called a specifically a hymn of praise. And we'll see how obvious that is. A hymn of praise. Do you ever find yourself, like I do, realizing that when you pray, assuming that you pray, and I hope that you do regularly, whether it's individually or corporately with others, um, that you find yourself using the same phrases over and over. It's kind of your go-to go -to, to things. Um, you may find yourself appropriating what others around you say, and you might add that into your own vocabulary. But have you ever found yourself disappointed knowing how big your God is, and yet you can't really get the words out to describe how majestic he is. I know I have found myself doing that, being disappointed and trying to describe an infinite God and going, Lord, I'm sorry, I'm just praying the same things over and over again. I think it's a wonderful thing, friends, that God knows that we should glorify him and yet he gives us the tools to be able to do so. He gives it right here in the Psalms. What if we prayed the way Psalm 8 does? Here we go, let me read it. I'm gonna read the whole thing. Our Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouths of babies and infants. You've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look to your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all the sheep and the oxen, the beasts in the field, the birds in the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, this morning we're humbled that before a word is on our lips, you already know it. And you're still right there to hear us every single time we praise you dull, in a dull way. We don't praise you the way we should. We should see you as being more mighty than we actually, if we're honest within our hearts, realize. But Lord, we are so honored this morning that as we come into your presence, you have given us the very words through which we should praise you. You do everything for us. 
What grace, Lord. And so, Lord, as we peer into this passage together as a church family, Lord, let us see you for being the big God you are and then being humbled that you also see us. Let us see you and how you see us this morning. Amen. This is a psalm, friends, that pans out and shows the handiwork of God with his little pinky and then pans all the way back in, zooms all the way in to show you that his fingerprint is also on you. It ought to humble you. It makes me think of the image that comes to mind is I think of David. He looks up at the stars, just looking at them. And then he looks back down at his hands, looks at what's around him and goes, who am I? that you would take notice of me. That's the image that I think we ought to have in our minds, looking up and looking down again, looking up and then looking down. Psalm 8 was written so that you would be in awe of the Lord and all of his creation and then be in awe of his mindfulness of you, that you pause so that you would be able to praise. And so here's how this all fits together, this passage. What strikes me about David's words is by how organized they are. I'll show you what I mean in just a second. They're they're incredibly organized, what we have here. And you would go, well, of course it's organized, Aaron. It's it's poetry. Doesn't he say in the beginning to the choir master, according to the gittith, whatever that is, is it like a dulcimer? Is it a triangle, cowbell, banjo? I have no idea. But this was supposed to be put to a song. Of course it's organized, Aaron. What's your point? I'll go, "I, I know that. But I think it raises this point that is fascinating to me. I think it raises the point having to do with emotions, spontaneity, and being deliberate. So often we make the connection that for something to be genuine, real, and authentic, genuine emotion, it has to be spontaneous, spur of the moment. And yet when you read the Bible, you... you, You see that in certain stories, but you also see what I would call formed affections. If you read the book of Lamentations sometime, and you'll realize that that Jeremiah is looking at Jerusalem in despair and in agony because the city of David is being destroyed by God's enemies, by the enemies of Israel through God himself. And it's a carefully formed book. It has 22 stanzas in three of the chapters that have an acrostic going through the Hebrew alphabet. It's incredibly deliberate. So while it's describing Jeremiah, Jeremiah's describing his agony. He's giving you his formed affections. Uh, Piper, I think, is helpful in making the connection between what is real and true in our heart versus spontaneity versus being formed in our affections. He says, emotions are like a river flowing out of one's heart. Form is like the river banks. Without them, the river runs shallow and dissipates on the plain. But banks make the river run deep. Why else have humans for centuries reached for poetry? Kind of like what we have right here. When we have deep affections to express, the creation of a form happens because someone feels a passion. How ironic then that we often fault form when the real evil is a dry spring. Don't think that for something to be authentic, it has to be spontaneous. You can have the deepest emotions expressed in the deepest and careful, most careful ways. The spirit works through sermon preparation. The spirit works 
some of the greatest joys that you can have is preparing a lesson. Those of you who are Sunday school teachers from, from our kiddos all the way up to our adults, some of the best moments you can have with the Lord is not just so much in the delivery, but it's in the preparation as God is forming the passions of your heart from what he's shown you in his word to give to others. He can give you formed affections and how you think about how you'll answer big questions that your kids will ask you. He works in the preparation and forming beforehand. And it's true right here in the psalm. So let me, let me show you what I mean here. Look at verse 1. Now, we referenced this, this concept before, an inclusio, or, or you see how David bookends what he does. Verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Go to verse 9. What do you see? Same thing. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So you see that. There's a bookend there. So there's a structure there. It gets better right? Let's nerd out together. Chiasm. That's the next thing, okay? Put the next uh, slide up, if you would. It'll help us here. Um, what's a chiasm? A chiasm is a structure. If you read the commentators, they, they find chiasms everywhere, and I think they overdo it in many cases, but I think we have one here. A chiasm is what happens when certain parts of a, a, a passage complement each other with a center point in the middle of it. If that's as clear as mud, let me, let me show you what I mean here, okay? You see that first part and that last part complements each other. How majestic is the name of our Lord? But when you look at the psalm here, you see that it's describing in the next part, talking about how God rules and it demonstrates his glory. Compliment. You see that in the last part as well, when it talks about how God has given dominion to man, how he is over and rules over creation. You see that compliment there? But this chiastic structure is set up so that there would be a center point. And you would see that, depending on, on some of the scholars, the, whether it's 3 and 4, verse 3 and 4, but for sure it's verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You, you see how this complements, and then it accents that part. It's de designed in such a way that you would read this passage, you would look up at what the Lord is doing and go, how incredible is this powerful God? And then when you see that verse 4 standing right in the middle of it, you go, and how is it that he's also mindful of me? The irony is you shouldn't look at this passage, though, and go, it's all about me. That's not what's happening here. It's meant for you to look at this passage, look up at God, and then in humility go, who am I that he would take sight of little me? Praise with humility is the right response to gazing and being in awe of our Lord. Let's not get ahead of ourselves with verse 4, though. Let's, let's walk through the passage. Oh, Lord, our Lord. That's the first part. That we praise the Lord for his majesty in verse 1 and 2. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens and out of the mouths of babies and infants. We'll stop there. Creation was designed so that you would look up and see that there's a creator. But then that I would look down and look into the deep, bright blue eyes of my second-born Samuel and go, what detail? What detail of what? How God so cares about this little child and yet he holds up the earth in infinite nothingness. 
this is the difference between looking at and looking alongside or seeing what it points to. This is, this is what Lewis talks about. And perhaps you've heard this quote. I think we've hit all of the big ones. This may be the last one. It's not true, but this, this is a big one. Here we go. Lewis talks about looking at versus looking alongside. And he talks about how he was standing in a dark tool shed one day, and the sun was shining outside, and, and through the crack at the top of the door, there came a sunbeam. And from where I stood, that sun, that beam of light with the specks of dust, you can imagine that, specks of dust, they're floating in, and it was the most striking thing that was in place in this dark room. Everything else was almost pitch black, and I was seeing the beam, I was not seeing things by it. He talks about how then he moved so that the beam fell on my eyes. Instantly, the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed and above all, no beam. Instantly, I saw framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves. And moving on the branches of a tree outside and beyond that, 90 odd million miles away, the sun. Looking along the beam, and looking at the beam are very different experiences. Isn't that so helpful to see? Do you find yourself, when you look at creation, are you, is it like just looking at the reality of the beam, beam of light? Or do you step into that beam of light and see how it points beyond itself back to the sun? It's the same thing with how we view creation. When you look at the heavens or when you look at the innocence of an infant, you don't just look at them. You see the beauty of their creator behind them. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So not only does it make you see how majestic is the Lord when you look at his creation, it ought to show you how with the same voices of infants, God can silence his enemies. Jesus in Matthew's gospel, if you were to turn to Matthew 21, you would see the account where Jesus is flipping tables in the temple um, before Passover. And he's, and he's driving out the money changer, uh, changers and the people who are there to sell uh, conveniently uh, for the sacrifices that will take place. And, he's, and they're doing that so that it can make a great profit. Jesus shows up and he says, don't do this. He says, my house will be called a house a prayer. That's what he says as he's flipping tables. You should know that for us, we see Bethesda as a house of prayer, so much so that we are presently working on developing a prayer room here at the church. We can't call ourselves a house of prayer if we don't have a dedicated space for that. And so know that in the future, we have something that we're working on in the fellowship hall. We're excited to show it to you when it's, when it's finished. But we want to be a place that calls ourselves a house of prayer. Jesus says these words, and then afterwards, the lame come up to him, children come up to him, and the children say, Hosanna to the son of David. And the religious leaders don't like this very much, and the text says that they hated it, and they said, do you hear what these are saying, they said to Jesus. And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read Psalm 8 too? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. The Savior counters the attacks of his enemies by quoting the Psalms. And so the pure words of these innocent children speak truth in a way that they could not have imagined. As my boys get older, and I've seen this with other, other children, innocently speaking truth purely 
man, that us adults have so much we can learn from by listening to. But don't miss it. When Jesus quotes Psalm 8 too, he's showing you his self-understanding. He's saying that the chatter and the noise of children witnesses that he is the Lord in this passage. And so Christ is worthy of our praise as we look to the heavens and as we look to the most innocent things around us. Let's go deeper now, okay? So that's the first part. Let's go deeper in verse three. While you praise God as creator, also see that he's mindful of you. This is the key passage. We know this. When I looked at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You see the wonder of God's creation with his pinky, and then you see how foundational it is to believe that God is the creator. Next week, Tony Haug is going to be uh, speaking uh, and, and preaching for us. Tony is Ted's brother, and he is a uh, missionary in uh, Shimonoseki, Japan. Yes, I worked on pronouncing that five times before I got up here. Shimonoseki, Japan is where he's at. And uh, we met this last week, and I asked him the question, tell me the challenges that you face, Tony. And he makes sure this with you when he's here. But he talked about how in his Japanese context, he is dealing with people who, who come from a Buddhist background and therefore there is a God for everything. And so one of the hurdles that need to be crossed over that you and I take for granted is the belief that there's one God. You got, you got to get that, he says, belief in one God. So consider how foundational, we take this for granted, how foundational it is to believe that there's one creator. Well, the first thing is, when you believe that there's one creator, it gets real specific real quick, right? There's a weightiness that comes to believing that there's one Lord. When there's a pantheon of gods, right, it's kind of like there's a God for everything. If there's a God for everything, then it's almost as if there's no God really at all. It waters down the whole thing. But one awesome, majestic, powerful Lord, that's a different kind of weight, right? Different kind of weightiness. And with that comes accountability, we know this, I've, I've preached this, you've heard this, this should be familiar. That if there's a creator who knows what is best for you, you and I are accountable to him. By the way, friends, when you're presenting the gospel uh, to others, it's always a good thing to mention before you get to sin, explaining how we have, we have transgressed God's commandments. It's good to mention that he's the creator first. Because it's one thing to say, you messed up. It's another thing to say, who you've done it against. The majestic creator of all things. There's a weightiness to that. So it's foundational to believe that. But the next part of the verse is what captures our heart. And this is why Psalm 8 is famous. That phrase, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Friends, I remember being in, in Zambia when I was 17 years old and we're in the bush in the middle of nowhere and I'm looking up at the stars and I don't know if you've ever experienced this. You look up at the stars and you, when there's no cities around you, like for a lot of miles, you can actually see the Milky Way. You can actually see what we see in pictures. You can see that going across the night sky and every couple seconds, you see shooting stars. That, that, that was the reality. And I remember as a 17-year-old looking at that and going, now I understand what David is talking about when he's writing passages just like this. That's what he sees. 
That's what he sees. Marvel as you zoom in, though, that that creator cares for you in every single moment. Slow down and see the orderliness of his beauty. And then see while he does all of that, he's mindful. I've made it a point this last week, friends, to meditate, hopefully, on verse 4, day and night, over, this, over these last several days. And I've found something, and maybe you can relate to this, that I moved from one level to the next. I kept thinking, Lord, you're mindful of me. That's true. That's one level. And then when my water heater broke on Thursday, and I'm talking with Justine, or, 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 or when my water heater broke, or when I was driving doing errands, or when I sat in grief after learning that one of my favorite authors had passed away, Keller, it then hit me on another level to think, in every single one of those moments, he's been mindful of me. And when you meditate on that, there's something mysteriously strange about it where you move from mere cognitive understanding and the spirit does something and it's not just he's mindful of me. It's like you could hear him saying, son, I am mindful of you. And it becomes personal on a deeper level. He is mindful of us. Our God does speak or in the words of Francis Schaeffer, he is here and he is not silent. Be humbled this morning, friend, that regardless of your, how you see yourself, your self-worth, how you feel, your God was mindful of you this last week, whether you realized it or not. Be humbled even deeper, even further. For those of us who are looking for self-worth in all of the wrong places, how much time do we spend obsessing, thinking about what others think about us? I've wasted too much time caring too much time caring, dwelling on whether I have the approval of certain people that I've looked up to in the past. And I forgot that all the while, while I was seeking somebody else's approval, I already had my Lord's. I'd ask you to not waste another moment placing your identity and thinking about what somebody else thinks about you, but see the Lord who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, hills who knows every single bird on every single mountain, and he cares for you. It gets better. Verse 5. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, the sheep and the oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. So not only does God silence his enemies with the voices of infants, the innocence of infants, not only does he hold the universe together and he is mindful of you, but thirdly, if that's not enough, that he takes notice of little you and me, he then elevates us in a way we should not be elevated. Praise the Lord, and this is the last thing. We'll spend a few moments here. That we are going to reign with Christ. When you look at verse 5. If I read in, in my ESV and you had a different translation, you might have noticed that verse 5 was different. This is something that is very interesting. The ESV says, you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. NIV says, a little lower than angels. NASB, other translations say, a little lower than God, a little lower than yourself, a little less than a God. And so you see kind of the, the translations are a little bit, I, I have not seen this too much elsewhere than right here. The tr translations are all over the place here. 
So what are we, what are we supposed to do? I would say this, however you cut it, you can see that there is God on one level and we are on, an, on another level below him. Daniel Aiken is helpful. He says, evolution may say we are slightly above the animals, but God says we are just a little lower than him and his angels. We are created in the image of God to demonstrate his glory and his splendor, to be crowned in glory and honor. We are made, Genesis 1.28, to be God's very representatives on this earth. This is what Genesis 1 says. If you read Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them, hear the words that I use as I speak now and how it reflects, verse 6 in particular here. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. David surely, as he's writing Psalm 8, has his Bible open to Genesis 1. Isn't that fascinating to think that when you read your Bible, the authors who are writing will have other portions of Scripture in their mind downloaded or in front of them as they write. See how the Bible, once again, Scripture interprets Scripture. Dominion. You see that list there in verse 7 through 8. David has his Bible open there. And so we were created to reign as God's representatives. This is something that has hit me as I've been studying the Bible. I don't know if you've noticed this. How much Genesis 1.28, the creation mandate, keeps popping up over and over throughout the Old Testament. The first Adam was created to be to rule and to reign and to fulfill the earth and subdue it. You see that language of be fruitful and multiply shows up with Noah. It shows up with Abraham. It shows up again with Israel. Israel is brought out of Egypt to be a kingdom of priests, but they rebelled in the wilderness. Each of these people are called to fulfill this mandate. Uh, G.K. Beale, one scholar says uh, that the creation mandate is like the first great commission. Uh, before Jesus says that in Matthew 28. And you see how people who are called to do this, to rule over the earth as God's representatives, they're unfaithful. They're unfaithful in the book of Joshua. They're unfaithful amongst the kings. Saul was unfaithful. And then when you get to David, David, the man after God's own heart, who's supposed to rule as God's representative, he himself sleeps with another man's wife, kills that man to cover it up, and destruction never leaves his household afterwards. You ask the question, what's worse, to lose the kingdom like Saul or to watch your family get destroyed in front of you like David? Each of these people are unfaithful. Each generation, you see a group that's created to represent God a little lower than him, and then they rebel. Man becomes more beast-like than God-like. I'd ask you to see today that God has also made you, though, to be his representative still. And to know that you cannot abuse his creation while he's called you to be his representative. You cannot worship and praise God and then dishonor those who are around you. And what I'm going to say next, I have not talked about this since I've been here. I've avoided this area until now. But let's just go for the jugular. Let's just go for it now. You can't say, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Well, the search history on your phone dishonors the Lord and demonstrates that you are using others to satisfy your own sexual sin. 
That's hypocrisy. You can't do both at the same time. What's worse is not only when you do that, you fail to represent God well, you're actually sinning, the Bible says, against your own body. And as an aside, I just want to say this. You know what drives me insane? Glad you asked. What drives me insane is hearing some pastors talk about how the culture out there is the reason for the decline of church membership in here and saying, man, things are, we're just going to be a remnant now. And things aren't going well because the, the, the culture is just, just making everything fall apart. And I just want to say, that's just not true. Like the church has been dealing with, with attacks from the enemy from outside over and over again, all the way, all the way down the last 2,000 years. Our problem ultimately isn't what's happening out there. It's what happens in here. Our problem is listening to the lies of the devil in here. Amongst them, hearing this lie and believing it, that my personal sin done in secret does not affect those who are around me. So, so let me say the quiet part out loud. Maybe if more fathers over the last 15 years had not been committing hidden sin, whether it's pornography or other things, behind closed doors, they would have demonstrated to their children that they were tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, and therefore that would have rubbed off on their kids. We, as we have talked about in evangelicalism about the youth dropout statistic, right? Right about this, the youth dropout statistic where a kid grows up in the church, graduates at 18, and then they're done afterwards. And we've talked about that so much and so much. I would say no wonder kids graduate from high school never to give a second thought about the church again because while they were in the home, they never saw the Christian faith impact their parents or make a difference in the lives of their parents. You can't expect for, for kids to grow up into adulthood and long for Christ when they never saw mom and dad doing that at home to begin with. Don't think for a moment, mom and dad, that your sin done behind closed doors doesn't affect your kids. I would ask you, search your heart. I've given you one example here, listed one, that keeps us from fulfilling the mission of representing God well on earth. But I'd ask you to go, what, what, am I, what other things, or maybe that one thing, do I need to give to the Lord and say, Lord, I know it's affecting others around me. I know I'm not representing you well to my family. Lord, forgive me. I want you to know that there is hope, friends. There is deliverance. God is capable of taking any sin, but we have to draw it into the light. So repent this morning, bring it in front of the Lord, get some brothers and sisters who love you alongside of you, and see how the Lord is capable of granting forgiveness and bringing redemption. We're wicked, we fail, we're fallen, and we don't represent God well. This is where the Apostle Paul comes in. Here comes Paul. He takes the last part of Psalm 8, and he loads it into 1 Corinthians 15. And he talks about how we fail, and the first Adam fails. And he says this in verse 25. He talks about a second Adam. And when he says, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put under subjection, that's in quotation marks, He's quoting Psalm 8 right here. It is plain, Paul says, that he, Christ, is expected who put all things in subjection under him. 
When all things are subjected to him, do you see that we're quoting this a lot? All things are subjected to him, then the son himself will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. All things are put underneath Christ so that he would reign. And when he accomplishes that, he will give them to his father and all things will be subjected to the one who is all in all. Christ the better Adam is more faithful than Adam. He is the better David. He's better than Israel. He has taken on flesh and he has done what we could not. He is the incarnate Christ who has come to rule. And the thing that floors me is that we're included. Jesus looks at you the way he looked at lukewarm Laodicea in Revelation 3.21. And he says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Who are we? Who are we? We can't fulfill the mandate, but Christ looks at us and says, I know you couldn't fulfill it yourself. That is why I have come. I have fulfilled it for you. And now come stand alongside as we will rule together for all eternity. Us underneath Christ with him forever. It is a grace. That's the gospel. The grace that we don't deserve. It is a grace that gives hope for a family this week. If you're in the Decker family, I've been thinking about you all week. Grieving the loss of a loved one. It is hope for them and for you to know that they will reign with that lost one for all eternity in the life to come. It is a grace that tells us that though we are unworthy, he redeems us and then lifts us up. It is a grace to know that though there is pain now, we'll be alongside him forever. And so do you despair, friend? Look at the stars. And then look at yourself and remember he's mindful of you. Do you see your sin? See how you can't fulfill the mandate he's given you to represent him well. And yet Christ has stood in your place. Is he mindful? Of course he is. Or in the words of Tim Keller, the central basis of Christian assurance is not how much our hearts are set on God, but how unshakably his heart is set on us. When all of these things hit you to your core and you realize that these are not just facts on a page, but a reality that is for you, there's only one thing left to do. End where we began. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.